from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. At Christmas, we celebrated that Christ came into this earth, Christ came into this world and made his dwelling among us here on earth. And for the months since then, we as a church have been journeying through the Gospel of John, asking the lifelong question, who is this man? Who is this man who turns water into wine? Who is this man who dines with tax collectors and sinners? Who is this man who gives sight to the blind? Who is this man who raises his friend Lazarus from the dead? And most recently, we've been invited to come, to come and see, come and see the man who washed the feet of his disciples and his betrayer alike, to come and see the man who would crucify, be crucified, taking on our sin and suffering out of his deep, deep love for you and this whole world over. We've been invited to come and see the man who would save his very best for last. We're so glad for the many of you who are gathered with us this morning for worship. Whether you are here in person or whether you are joining us online, this is indeed a glad day, the best of days to gather for worship. And we join with the psalmist who said that this is indeed a day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's sing together. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side, knowing this was our salvation. Friends, remember this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from John 20 verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have put him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him. He went straight into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, but not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God 
and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please rise in body or in spirit and let's sing together. Friends, Christ is risen. risen On Thursday evening, we gathered in this space and relived Jesus' final hours through scripture, and we extinguished our Christ candle to symbolize the death and burial of Christ. This morning, Pastor Nate relights the Christ candle because Christ is risen. risen Let's continue celebrating that.
may be seated. This morning, we invite you into a responsive reading. The words will be on the screen. This reading is special because it has been one that the church has used um, for many centuries because it was written, it was a part of a sermon that was written just a few hundred years after Jesus rose from the dead. So we join not only this morning our voices together, but with Christians for many years in proclaiming the truths of this very poignant sermon. So let's uh, use the words on the screen. My words will be in white. Your words as the congregation will be in orange. Let no one mourn that they have fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put it into an uproar, even as it tasted of his flesh. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it is mocked. It was in an uproar, for it is destroyed. It was in an uproar, for it is annihilated. It was in an uproar, for it is now made captive. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O oh, death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, he has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Then on 
you may be seated. Well, good morning, church and friends and guests. The Lord be with you. Today, this morning, we have already read the Easter text. We've already announced the Easter news. Christ is risen. risen And so now, risking redundancy, I want to say something that I hope you already know full well. Easter is a really big deal. It just might be the biggest thing ever. We live in a world in which we use words rather freely and carelessly, and so we might skip an afternoon snack and then say by dinner time that we're starving to death. Or we might stub our toe somewhere and say that it is the worst day ever. Alongside these hyperboles, which are far too frequent for us, I will add one more that I think is actually deeply true. Easter just might be the most important day in all of world history. The great historian out of Yale University named Yaroslav Pelikan is known to have said to a dear friend on his deathbed that if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then nothing else really matters. And if the resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen, then nothing else really matters. Easter is that kind of big, and so for today, I prepared a 16-point message. (laughs) I hope you brought a lunch. It's actually 16 points long, but that's because it's related to these chairs that are before you, and in preparation for this day, I have pictured you in one of these four chairs. Now, of course, I don't know all of you. Somewhat embarrassingly, I don't even know all of your names. I certainly don't know all of your stories. But I do wonder if this morning you might be sitting in one of these four chairs. Some of you, I suspect, are here today because you're curious. You're in the curious chair. You have some big questions about life lately, and something has been stirring in you that is mysterious, possibly of God. Maybe like me, you've been week after week and year after year to the supermarket, and there even at the checkout aisle, among all the other tabloids, you keep seeing the very face of Jesus there, right in between whatever the news of the day might be, a shocking Oscar slap or rolling Russian tanks, whatever it might be, throughout the ages, there too seems to be recurringly the very face of Jesus Maybe you are coming to a conclusion lately like that of the great intellect, H.G. Wells, who surveyed what he's seen in all of history and says that Jesus is easily the dominant figure in all of history. You simply cannot portray the history of humanity honestly without giving a foremost place to the penniless teacher out of Nazareth. The Roman historians ignored him entirely, he goes on to say, And yet a historian like myself, who does not even consider himself to be a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around this most significant man. Perhaps you, like him, are curious, and so today you're in the curious chair. Maybe others of you are here today because you are committed. You're in the committed chair. This is perhaps the 10th or the 30th or the 80th Easter service that you've attended, and there is nowhere else in the world that you would rather be right now. Your life thus far has been a long obedience in the same direction, and this right now, being here today, is just another faithful step on the way. You're here because you're committed to this person called Jesus. Still others of you might be here, but not really. You're kind of skeptical, really. You're in the contemptuous chair. You are here with arms crossed and with your eyes ready to roll. Maybe it's already happened multiple times in this service today. You're here because lunch is at mom's place, and this is on the way to that, right? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And you're sitting in this chair thinking, this whole Easter thing, it's really not for me. And so you're here with a shield up and you are ready to resist. 
In Old Testament language, you would be described as one with a hard heart and a stiff neck, but you don't care. You're in the contemptuous chair. <laughs> Last but not least, I suspect that some of you are here today in crisis. You're here because your life is in crisis. And especially this year, you cannot help but notice when we read the Easter story that it, it begins while it was still dark. And you know a little too much darkness lately in your life. You're in this chair and you're sad. You're lonely. You're angry. You're hurting. You're something. Your life is not working right now and it is beyond your control and so if Easter has any kind of good news to offer you'll take it and a double dose please you're in the crisis chair now whichever chair you might find yourself in this morning whether you are curious or committed contemptuous or in crisis I think the invitation of Easter morning is yet still the same for all of us the invitation is to come and see. It is to come and see Jesus. This is actually a recurring theme throughout the Gospel of John, and to my count, it happens four times in John's Gospel. The first time, I've come to call this the come and see cycle that you have up there on the screen. The first time we hear the invitation to come and see, it's on the very, word, very lips of Jesus himself. Some people have come up behind him, they are curious about this man that others have said is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're curious, and Jesus sees them there, and he says, come and see what life is like with me. They go with him, and their life is never the same. The next time we hear the invitation to come and see in the Gospel of John, it's actually on the very lips of the disciples, said by one of those first disciples to another yet would-be disciple. So Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see this man who is like no other. They are in that instance doing exactly what committed disciples do. They are seeking to know Christ and to make him known in all of life. The third instance where there is a come and see invitation in the Gospel of John happens surprisingly on the very lips of one who is otherwise contemptuous. Yeah, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman there who has secrets that she'd prefer to keep in the dark. She is one who approaches Jesus at first with arms crossed and eyes ready to roll. She is not interested in this man and not impressed by his reputation. Their interactions at first is full of sass and full of snark. And yet, as it rolls on and Jesus keeps offering a steady, loving presence to her, she ends up falling head over heels for him. And she runs off to tell her whole hometown village, a Samaritan village, to come and see this man who knows my everything and loves me anyways. The last instance that happens in John's Gospel, the last come and see invitation is now gone full circle. It is on the lips of some dear friends spoken right back to Jesus himself. Mary and Martha are in crisis. Their beloved brother, Lazarus, has died, and they bring their problems back to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, come and see the tomb of the one that you love. Jesus goes to that tomb. He weeps, he snorts, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. It ends up being a resuscitation. Lazarus will die again, but it is a foreshadowing of what will happen to Jesus himself and what is promised for each and every one of us to resurrection life. There is yet another come and see invitation, I think, however, implicit in the Gospel of John, and it's in the very story that we just read. John chapter 20 is a story all about seeing, and I suggest that today we too, and all Christians, all people everywhere, are invited repeatedly to come and see the evidence of Easter. Interestingly, in the Easter story that we read already this morning, there is no less than 10 instances of seeing 
Mary sees, Peter sees, John sees, Mary sees again and then announces what she's seen. The disciples all together see and they are filled with joy. And the theme of the whole Easter story is that seeing is believing. And so I want to invite you now to come and see again the evidence of Easter. It happens in four scenes. The first scene of the Easter story is the empty tomb. The empty tomb, it's precisely what Mary Magdalene discovers while it was still dark. What you're looking at up there right now is a picture of an empty tomb discovered by archaeologists in the Holy Land. It's almost certainly not the exact tomb of Jesus, but it does fit the very description of the kind of one that he was put in, and it is found in a time and place fitting to the story of Jesus I invite you to wonder this morning, to be curious, what would it be like to be the first to discover the tomb of Jesus now empty? Our curiosities would naturally abound, wouldn't they? What in the world happened here on Easter morning? Where did he go? And what does this mean? We have been trained from our own human lives and even from the songs of Sesame Street, the fundamentals of life, right? Everybody eats, everybody sleeps, everybody poops, and everybody dies, right? That's just real life. And so there is no natural explanation, therefore, to discover the tomb of Jesus on Easter morning now found empty. I mean, to be sure, Jesus was killed on Friday, 3 p.m., there was no shortage of witnesses, and he was placed in a tomb. Easter morning is now three days removed. He's been dead for three days, and he's dead because there's no shortage of people who wanted him to be dead. At that time, it was the political powers who aligned with the religious leaders, and the whole Jerusalem city crowd joined in their affirmations to saying, crucify him. And that is what they did. In fact, the powers that be at the time were so invested in Jesus being dead and staying dead that they posted Roman guards to make sure that no funny business would happen at the tomb. And yet, on Easter morning, it was found empty. Read the biographies of almost anyone else in world history. Abraham Lincoln, Rosa Parks, you pick your person. The story always ends when the person dies. And if John's gospel were yet again just a normal biography, it would end in chapter 19 with Jesus is crucified and buried. But chapter 20 exists, and it exists because the tomb was found empty. So, Dear curious ones, I invite you to consider. Consider, look at that picture, and consider all the ways that this world seeks to put good people down. Consider all the ways that wrongdoing has wreaked havoc in your own life, perhaps your sin or someone else's. Consider all the dearest loved ones that you too have sent off to a grave and how it seems so final, and they remember again that the tomb of Jesus was found empty on Easter morning. That scene in its original setting is just plain shocking, and theologians, Christian theologians throughout the ages have said that this means that God has vindicated the way of Jesus over and against all the other dark and twisted ways of this world. The first scene of Easter, its first evidence is an empty tomb. It is cosmic and mysterious, more than plenty enough to make us curious. The second evidence of the Easter story, however, that we are invited again to come and see this morning, I've come to call it the scene of the folded linens. The scene of the folded linens. So Mary Magdalene leaves the tomb that she first discovered and runs to tell the disciples about it. Peter and John end up in this kind of curious foot race back to the tomb, and the text is clear to tell us who wins. I love one ancient commentator who has joined in and said that John beats Peter to the tomb because Peter was married. 
I, I don't know. It does happen that way. John beats him there. And yet Peter's the bold one, and Peter enters first. And what do they find in the tomb? Folded linens. A body wrap and a headband left so properly that it's almost as if Marie Kondo had been there to clean up. Importantly, the disciples are doing exactly what committed disciples would do. They are investigating the details that are available to them in the moment, and the closer to Christ, the better. And the evidence of this second Easter scene, the folded linens, what they mean for us is that the body was not stolen or moved. If it was moved or stolen, they surely would have moved it in the wrappings, right? Just picture it. Nobody wants to unwrap a dead body now stinky. Nobody wants to carry around town a naked, stiff corpse. It's gross. You're not going to do it that way. And so the disciples, the committed ones, are the ones who actually investigate the scene. They duck down and go into the tomb and evidence of their own humility they go in there and they do what disciples do. They study the very words and deeds of Jesus, including now this vacated tomb. And it is in that tomb, through their study, that they remember the very words of Jesus, that he actually did say that he would die, that he would be killed, and that he would rise from the dead three days later. When he said it, some time ago, they thought that he was speaking in metaphors or perhaps in parables, that it wasn't going to happen literally, but now, as they are standing in an empty tomb alongside these neatly folded linens, they realize he meant it when he said it, and he did it. And the text says that they saw and they believed. Scene two of the Easter story is about investigation, and the disciples are not blind believers they actually become in this moment a kind of forensic scientist married to being also biblical scholars. They investigate the information and come to a faithful conclusion. It reminds me of the great definition of true faith in the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 21, says what is true faith? And it offers three answers, that it is knowledge and conviction, that everything God says in God's word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance that all of this is ultimately for me. That's what it says that true faith is. And that's what the disciples are doing in this particular scene. They are investigating, and for them, it is the adventure of a lifetime. The third evidence of Easter that we are invited to come and see on Easter morning is now an appearance of the risen Christ. It's a personal encounter the image you're seeing is the one that we revealed at the very beginning of this service. It's the one that we've been slowly peeling away the fuzz all throughout our Lenten journey as we come and see the risen Lord. It's been said that this reunion, this is a mosaic of Mary Magdalene encountering the risen Christ. And it's been said that this is one of the greatest reunions in all of literature. It is a bright and beautiful instance, and it might have you wondering why then that part of the story would be associated with this chair, the contemptuous chair. Well, I'll tell you, Mary Magdalene is remembered in the Gospels, especially the end of them, as being an exemplary character. She is wonderfully devoted, but her story began quite differently. And in the Christian scriptures and in Christian tradition, Mary Magdalene is known first as being a scarlet sinner. Taboo sins, too dark to name. She is actually a bit like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's contemptuous at first. She approaches Jesus with arms crossed and with eyes ready to roll. The, t the Bible actually tells her that early on, Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. And when the Bible says that, it might mean it literally. Today, we might say it differently. Certainly, what it means is that her life was a tragedy. It was tormented in all kinds of very pitiable ways, physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically. She was isolated and alone, and her life was grim until she met the Christ. 
And then this scene is a scene in which she meets him again. Notice how the story unfolds in almost the very same way that her life has. It begins with Mary having her back to Jesus, and she's crying. She's weeping. Life is tragic. Jesus is actually there speaking to her, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks that he's the gardener, but then she calls out her name, Mary. And when he says her name, she knows that it is him because he knows the names of his sheep and they recognize his voice, John chapter 10. She turns, which is the fundamental act of anyone who is to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Mary turns and exuberantly says, Rabboni, a wonderfully warm and friendly greeting and they embrace and they hold on so long that Jesus finally has to say, you gotta let me go, you gotta let me go. But it is indeed a glorious moment, a most wonderful reunion. I wish I could somehow transpose on you this morning the exhilaration of that moment. I mean, picture, if you will, this is a much lesser scale, of course, but picture, if you will, being reunited, perhaps for the first time, with one of those, one of those that you have loved the most but now lost, and you reunite yet again. Put that alongside also, however, being meeting for the first time someone who has saved your life, set you free from seven demons, whatever that might mean from you, for you, and also one who has now conquered sin and death on your behalf. Who cares how contemptuous you've been at that point? Who cares how far you've wandered from the flock? Who cares what your life story has been? It is all radically transformed by this encounter with the risen Christ. This scene is a scene of a personal encounter, and it is indeed wonderful and warm and bright. Now, the story could end there. The story could end, and it would be good news, good news for all the world to hear. Sin forgiven, death defeated, relationships restored. But there are yet still some in that last chair, aren't there, who are in crisis today and even back then. And there is one more scene in the Easter story. I've come to call this last scene, Mission Continued. The image that we have is one of new life breaking forth in places of otherwise seemingly death all over. It's for people all over the world who are hiding and hurting, even on Easter morning. We didn't read these verses when we read the text earlier, but the very next three verses of the Easter story are about Easter night. John chapter 20, 19, verses 19, 20, and 21 are the story of the disciples in crisis. They have retreated to an upper room and they are hiding behind a locked door, fearing that the very ones who sought out Jesus and killed him will now do the very same thing to them. They're in crisis. And Jesus appears again to them. And at first, he offers wonderful words of peace. He offers peace to them in that moment. And then he says a seemingly absurd thing to these disciples. He says, as the Father has sent me, so now I also send you. How absurd, how cruel it might seem even. I mean, these disciples are busy in that locked room, aren't they? They are busy nursing their wounds, rehearsing their failures, coddling their fears. They're in crisis, and Jesus is not very therapeutic. <laughs> he offers peace, to be sure, but actually in the very same sentence, he also sends them out on mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. In other words, get up, get out of here, and go into the world and be like me. There's an old American proverb that says that you cannot steer a parked car. You cannot steer a parked car. It's a fancy way of saying that doing nothing is going to get you nowhere. And to be sure, the world is yet still dark, darker than we would like to admit. Sin and death are still scary, and there is no guarantee that our life will go well in this world. Jesus himself was killed on a cross, but he does not appear to his disciples and then say, whoo, that was terrible. Avoid it at all costs. 
He doesn't appear to them and say, you know, friends, times are tough. Why don't you just lay low for a while until you kind of feel like it? He says, get up, get out of here, and go be like me. I'm thinking now of Telemachus, an old Roman Christian, a monk, who lived around the time 390 A.D., He caught wind, he lived outside of the city, and he caught wind of the gladiator games that were happening in the Colosseum, death games, if you will, and he thought, no, not in God's world. And so he left his comfortable, locked, safe place and went to the big city and to the Colosseum, and even while the gladiator games were happening, he willingly dropped in into the arena and said, enough of these death games, this is not entertainment, or something to that effect. The gladiators turned and struck him down, and his blood joined with the blood of the martyrs throughout the ages. But Telemachus's death on that arena floor was the beginning of the end of the gladiator games. It was an instance in which new life was springing forth in a place of otherwise death. I'm thinking also of some of our very own fellowshipians. I'm thinking of 20 years worth of birthday parties celebrated. Some of you, some 20 years ago, came across a youth group kid whose life was not going all too well. They didn't have all that much going that was good in life altogether. And so this family took this person underneath their wing, invited them to church activities, invited them to Christmas with the family, took them on family vacations, and certainly celebrated birthdays. Even one more of those, even just this past week. It is an instance of new life springing forth in places that are otherwise dark and rather deathly. I could share more stories, stories where Christians are acting Christ-like and bringing the Easter life to the world today. But the real question I have for you this morning is what would it be like for you in this fourth scene of the Easter story to stand face-to-face with the risen Christ and whichever chair you're sitting in, whether you are curious, whether you are committed, whether you are contemptuous, or whether you are in crisis, to hear the risen Christ who has done everything one it all for you to hear him now say, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Think about it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, this is good news, no matter what chair we find ourselves in. I invite you to stand, and as we go from this place, we will sing, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. I think you're going to do just fine on this song.
You may be seated. The evidence of Christ rising, rising from the grave is certainly our only hope, both in this life and in the next. And we certainly need a lot of hope these days, don't we? As senseless violence causes fear and anxiousness in New York, as the darkness of war looms over the U Ukraine and its citizens, as devastating floods cover the southern part of the continent of Africa, and more closely to home, as frustration, anger, grief fill our very own Grand Rapids community after yet another tragic death. We certainly hope and yearn for the hope that only Christ can offer to us. As a tangible expression of our faith community's commitment to seeing Christ's reconciling work done in this world, our Easter offering this morning will be going to our denominational denomination's efforts in Eastern Europe to support Ukrainian refugees who have fled their own war-torn countries. All cash offerings and designated gifts given both uh, in the offering basket and online on our website will go to that effort. And as people who are, uh, uh, live in hope, we also pray. We also pray to the God that we believe can bring new life even out of the most dark situations in our world. So let's join our hearts together in prayer. Oh Christ, you came to this earth to be an example to us of how we might live. But more importantly, you came to this earth to exhibit the great lengths you would go to reconcile us back to yourself, and not just us, but this whole earth over. We pray that we and this whole world over might someday fully realize that amazing love and live in response to it by loving one another but in the meantime, we know that your sacrificial love and unending graciousness does not yet permeate all of this world. And so we pray. We pray that the very same power that you made evident in rising from the dead might bring hope to the darkest parts of our world. We pray for the innocent victims and displaced people of Ukraine. Lord, hear our prayers for peace. For the millions throughout our world who struggle to find adequate food and housing, and especially those affected by the floods in Africa, Lord, hear our prayers for sustenance and safety. For the fears and anxieties that surround the people of Brooklyn and New York, Lord, hear our prayers for their comfort and safety. And for the frustration, anger, fear and fatigue of our brothers and sisters in Grand Rapids and in this whole world over who cry out, how long, O oh Lord? Lord, hear our prayers for justice and redemption. And for those in our own homes, for us, O oh Lord, who yearn for relief from pain and suffering, who ask for peace for those who find themselves in relational discord or chaos, who want grace for their hurting wounds. Lord, hear our prayers. Risen Christ, the evidence of your resurrection was exhibited 2,000 years ago, and we yearn for it and believe and hope for it yet again. So we ask that you would breathe your life-giving spirit and hope into this world through us and through our, your church. But we need you. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Once more, I invite you to stand, and we'll join our voices together in singing. I bet you can guess. <laughs> Christ is risen. <laughs> A different version. <laughs>
Friends, today we are celebrating that Christ has risen and we are seeking the Easter life among us. And so on your way out of the sanctuary, you may find these cards where we would love to hear your stories of the Easter life springing up among us. Whether you've been with us for a week or for 50 years or anywhere in between, we'd love to hear from you. They're available from, uh, in the upcoming weeks ahead as well. As you go from this place into God's great world that he loved so much that he would die and rise from the dead to save it, may you go in the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.